lovely jet lag. Um, it's there. It's there. It's all right. <laughs> it's hovering. Yeah. No, I kind of just tough it out when I get back. So I don't sleep on planes. So I just, wherever I land, I just, I'm really tired. And then I just wait until I'm supposed to go to sleep, basically. So I just kind of torch myself with it. But I've done all right. I've had a couple of full night's sleep since I've been back. You don't sleep because you're torturing yourself or you don't sleep because you can't sleep on planes? They seem to be two very different things. I can't sleep on planes. Uh, I also enjoy torturing myself as well. <laughs> you know, you've got to keep yourself sharp somehow. Yeah, I just, I'm just really militant with it. I suppose I'm quite practised at dealing with jet lag. But I mean, it... If you sleep on the plane, you're just not going to sleep for a week when you get back. And that's just rubbish. The thing I try to do with jet lag um, from Australia. So with the final being an evening on a Sunday, say we're back to our apartments after the, after the Australian opens are about three in the morning. I take the six o'clock flight. But this year it was a really quick straight sets Novak Djokovic final. So it's like midnight and I'm twiddling my thumbs thinking... Okay, I've got to stay awake till six in the morning when this flight is. Normally it works perfectly. And I was having showers. I was just pacing around. I was trying to find people to talk to, but everyone who was sensible was going to sleep because they had a flight the next afternoon. I'm thinking, how am I going to stay awake until six o'clock? Well, my thinking is, if I stay awake all night, get onto the plane, I'll be that tired that I will sleep a little bit. But the ridiculous thing is, I then get on the plane, get a second wind at 6 a.m., don't sleep. And I end up back in the UK the same day, about eight o'clock, and I'm just a wreck. But the good news is I do sleep. So (laughs) it's not the best, but it it kind of works, I think, maybe. Yeah, I think when you're coming back from Australia, it's it's long enough that I probably would have a doze for probably an hour or two. But it's not, I just don't, I can't sleep on planes. I don't like sleeping on planes. And I mean, it made my life a lot easier if I did, but... Yeah, part of the reason I, I didn't like travelling because I always felt like crap at the other end. <laughs> no surprise why. <laughs> and as a player, you've got to do an awful lot of travelling. I mean, those guys are in Asia. Asia comes to an end and then they're spread out across the world at the tournament. We've got some of the ATP tour in, in Moscow and some are in Antwerp and everyone everyone is absolutely everywhere. You're, apart from your, your lovely yellow handbag, which has got a lot of compliments, I should be saying, yeah. um, you're... Your Shanghai, what, what do you take away from Shanghai? Memories from Shanghai? Well, the yellow bag is definitely the highlight. I think it's great. People seem to like it. <laughs> of course I thought, it is. I'm very happy. Why would it not be? The highlights, <laughs> well, I mean, it was just, yeah, it was just great fun. I mean, I love the, the roof is just so cool. Like, it's so cool the way that it closes. Very slow. <laughs> it's probably the slowest roof I've ever seen. But it's also silent. But it is, um, yeah, very cool stadium. It's an it's an amazing tournament. There's uh, no surprise as to why it is so popular. When I think back to it now, I just th- just remember eating dumplings. Just a lot of dumplings, to be honest, <laughs> keeping me going. But yeah, and then of course, yeah, the tennis. Just being able to commentate on the final was amazing. And uh, yeah, we just had a really great time. I mean, you have long days when you work on site. We talk about this all the time, but it really did fly by. I felt like the days were a lot shorter than they were. Um, and we had just had some great tennis to get, get stuck into. You had Andy Murray back, of course, winning matches, telling Fabio to shut up <laughs> and, <laughs> and and all sorts. So yeah, it's what we had it all. Can I just say that the tennis really felt like an afterthought. We had a little bit on the bag and then it was followed by dumplings. And then suddenly 
I saw you look up going, and there was the tennis. <laughs> yes. It certainly was. A t- Do you remember, I think it was last week or the week before, I said that on social media, I'd seen a question that said, when will Daniel Medvedev lose? And the options mm. were Asia, before the end of the year, and never. So I pressed mm. never. And, and I'm actually feeling quite good about that because he obviously didn't lose in Shanghai. He's now pulled out of Moscow because he said, you know, as much as I'd have loved to, because it's, it's where I live, I just don't feel ready. So I'm feeling, I'm pretty, I'm not feeling too bad now about Daniel Medvedev never lose. So which is why I ask you this question, which is dividing opinion. Is Daniel Medvedev the best male player on the planet right now? Ooh, that is a tough question to answer. I, see, I don't think it, I don't think it is a tough question. Is he the best male planet, player on the planet right now? Yes. Is that your answer? Yes. No, look, look, do you know what? I'm going to get into the detail here. So what you're saying is that if it was the US Open final tomorrow and it was Medal, jet lag, God, go away. If it was Medvedev against Nadal in the US Open final tomorrow and you are commentating on it like you commentated on it before, you're telling me that Medvedev's a favourite. I'm not saying he's the favourite. But, but, but the statement is... Well, uh, well, are you saying he's the best player in the world right now? So then he would be the favourite. But right now he is because he's just won Shanghai. Nadal wasn't playing. Djokovic and Federer both lost, etc. Right now, as things stand, with the runner matches that he's on, the titles that he's won, I, I, I believe that right now... But then I'm, I'm a little bit conflicted because we're in the commentary box and someone said, if, if you needed a tennis player to play of play a set of tennis for your life. I mean, we've now upped the stakes here somewhat. For your life, who would you pick? And I'd pick Djokovic. And it's a little bit like in our predictions competition, I picked Djokovic to win Shanghai, despite saying that Medvedev would never lose again. So as you can see, I'm slightly conflicted (laughs) in this. But I think to the statement, is Medvedev the best male player on the planet right now? My immediate gut reaction is yes. Just because everything he's doing, r- like right this second, Nadal's on his pre-wedding honeymoon, going back into training for the rest of the season. Right this second, I would say yes. Yeah, I've, I think that's bold. Right this second. I can't, so right you now. think that it, if, if US Open final was tomorrow, he would be the favourite? Oh, he would be one of the favourites. Is he the fa- he'd be the favourite going into Paris? Yes. Favourite into London? The way he's playing, Yes. If he comes, if he comes through Paris and wins Paris, you're then telling me he's not the favourite for London. I think he's the favourite for London anyway. But in, in terms of being the best player on the planet, like that's a, it, I don't know. I feel like it's a different question. Like he is the most informed player. He has been producing the best level of tennis consistently. He's been winning more than anybody else. But if all of the top guys played their absolute best level of tennis. He would not be the best. Ah, but that's not the question. The question was not if all the top guys played their best level of tennis, who would win? It's who's the best player on the planet right now? (laughs) And this second, with Nadal on pre-wedding honeymoon, Djokovic's shoulder probably not completely there. Roger Federer slightly losing the plot, as we saw in in Shanghai. (laughs) with some very un-senior Roger Federer, because when he was a junior, we had a bit of that like behaviour. I think right now... Yes, but this is the most uh, this is the most commitment I've ever heard you give to any sort of opinion. Really, <laughs> really this is this is quite ferocious. I don't feel like I can say anything against it. I just uh, look. It's a very nuanced question, isn't it? And of course, in terms of the players, 
the players that were in Shanghai, he played the best tennis. And he's, of course, producing the best tennis, I think, of anyone. So, yeah, I suppose you can, but you, you can't. But Nadal's just opting not to play. That's the thing. Nadal has beaten him twice in the last few months. I totally get I was working with Barry Cowan and he said, absolutely not. He said, he said it is Nadal. And, and you look at, you know, where has he won a Grand Slam? He hasn't. Where is it? I, and I, I, I do get both sides. It was, I mean, Barry was getting quite like, he's not. This is. Oh, the- I love these conversations with Barry. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so good. He was, he was like, he's absolutely not. He's definitely not. But I just think, for me, it's just the words right now. So, so right this second, I think he's playing the best tennis. And yes, they'll be, well, Nadal didn't play and et cetera, et cetera. But I, I think if nothing else, I cannot help but admire what Daniel Medvedev is doing and how calmly he is doing. He didn't celebrate at all. He wins Shanghai and he's just like, there we go. There, there's another match. Yeah, that was actually hilarious. Like he actually, he just uh, hit the ball, just tapped it away to the ball kid. But it was as if he just like gone one love in the first set. Yeah, <laughs> I know. So funny. And then he smiled at his coach and was like, yeah, I won. We kind of thought I'd win. That's what I do. <laughs> there we yeah. go. This guy, he's just a kid down the other end. <laughs> I don't know. No, amazing. The octopus. That's what he is. Remember? Oh, are you coming around to my way of thinking now about the octopus? Yes. Such <laughs> an octopus. I think it's excellent. <laughs> I, I will say, though, just for the record, that I disagree with the statement that he's the best player in the world right now. Because I do think that if he was playing Rafa tomorrow... Rafa is the favourite for that match. And I think that Rafa would win more times than Medvedev would win if they compete against each other right now. And that for me means that he is not the best player in the world. Not to move away from the octopus, but I I compared him to another creature (laughs) during Shanghai. Do you remember the Jungle Book? Yes. And there was a snake. Was it Python? Yeah. And he hypnotised you by his eyes going all whirly. You know, they'd like 20, 20, <laughs> yeah. and you'd stare into his eyes and then he could tell you what to do. And I think his mission was to try and eat you, but it was to sort of hypnotize you. I, I found Medvedev to be a little bit like that. I can't remember, I can't remember the name of the snake, but he lulls you into what he wants you to do. He gets the shot that he wants. He breaks you down and you sort of end up forgetting your game, forgetting your game plan A, B and C, and either doing something quite ridiculous or completely playing into his hands. Interesting. Yeah. Again, a snake doesn't let things go. So that follows on with the octopus theme. There you go. You <laughs> throw that in there as well. I love this. <laughs> I find it hilarious listening to everybody talk about his game. All anyone says is it's just so uncomfortable. He makes you miss and you don't even know why. And then there's just sits past being like, it's boring. It's so boring. He sounds like me. It's hilarious. <laughs> so boring. Well, did you see that Medvedev was, that was put to Medvedev at his press conference in Moscow. Did you hear that Sitsipas said that you're boring, your game's boring? And he came back with, oh, really? I see. And then he ended it with something he said before. He said, we're not friends, but we're not enemies. We're just colleagues. It's, it's a statement he's made a couple of times now. And there's been other little kind of little digs from Medvedev coming out about, I don't know, was it stuff from the, the Lever Cup or something when Sitspas was saying, oh, they made me drink alcohol and I didn't like it, but I did. And so there's, there's, there's friction between these two. And in some ways, it's exciting for the game because these guys are the future. Maybe they're the present. They're the present and the future. And they're going to be battling it out with each other for, we hope, years to come. So you, you need a little bit of that. It's lovely when everyone gets on. But as we saw with the Fanini and the Murray, <laughs> and the Murray telling Fanini to shut up, it's nice to have a little bit of needle. And in these characters, you know, Medvedev going, 
Well, he might think it's boring, but this, I quite, I quite like the fact there's a little bit of needle there. You like the drama? A little bit of drama. Because <laughs> then it's not so boring, because you find everything boring. <laughs> yeah, I don't find Medvedev boring, though, at all. I find what he does absolutely fascinating and... Everything that he's doing on the court is very calculated. I think it's really interesting talking about the tactics. And the biggest thing that I was looking at actually in the final, um, because having the luxury of having Hawkeye right next door to us. So I was chatting with them. We were crunching numbers before the the final got underway. I say we. I was mainly pointing and they would crunch numbers. (laughs) Do that. (laughs) They're very good. And for me, I thought that the theme of the match going into it was uh, about the big moments because you've got one player who's been really in form and one player who hasn't been in form through the year. Uh, And I felt like the big moments was a really big part of that. I mean, okay, the double faults, slight issue. But aside from that, uh, just kind of how to play the big points. And we know that when Zverev is under pressure, when he's down in a game or when he's facing break points, he just runs away, just runs to the back of the court. Even though what he's been doing, staying up near the baseline has been working, he, he just can't help it. He, he knows. I think a lot of people sit and watch it and think somebody should tell him. He's aware. It's just, it's just very difficult to do when you're under that much pressure. You rely on your automatic and your, your comfort zone. But we looked at it and actually their average hit point through the rally, through the tournament, uh, was pretty much identical. Medvedev's was just a couple of centimetres in front of Zverev's. But when it was break point... Zverev's average hit point through the tournament, even when he's been playing well, he retreated about over a metre, about a metre and a half. So he was a metre and a half back from his normal hit points. Medvedev, when he was facing break points and down in a game, his positioning, his average hit point increased by a metre and a half. So he really stepped up. Also, the pace on his shots increased as well from his average throughout the rest of the tournament and Zverev's pace dropped. So it just shows the complete contrast in when you're like, well, A, it's just the difference between the two of them because it's funny, I think a lot of people would say that Zverev is the more aggressive player. But actually, there's more than one way to be aggressive. You don't have to belt everything. And even though Medvedev hits the ball very hard, he doesn't just like unleash with loads of power, but his positioning. And we saw so many times break points down. It was like serve volley. I mean, he's just so bold and brave on those points. And I think that is what gets him out of so many situations and why he's barely lost a set so long. But that for me was really fascinating. And anyway, I got a little bit sulky because uh, we'd had all these interesting conversations, me and Hawkeye before. And we were like, right, we're going to show this graphic at One Love. And that was that was great. And I thought this is going to be a really nice theme through the match because if both of these players play well, it's going to come down to moments. And who's going to step up on the big moments? I reckon it's going to be Medvedev, right? And that was going to be my evidence for it. So we did all of that and it was fine. But then the match goes on and, you know, well, the first set came down to the fact that Zverev was 5-4 down and hit two double faults at 30-all. That's an issue because <laughs> you lost the set. <laughs> and uh, I think my analysis of the um, the stats was kind of like, none of these numbers matter apart from that number two there, double faults, <laughs> Put it in bold, make it huge. That's why he lost the set. But then in the second set, he just wasn't playing very well. And unfortunately, as much as I love tactics and strategy and all of this sort of stuff, it's only relevant when both players are playing well. Because if you have one player playing well and one player hitting double faults on big points, missing shots that they wouldn't ordinarily miss, they're just not playing well. That's why they're losing. It's not really to do with the tactics. So it gets a little bit kind of like, oh man, I had something really good to look at there, but uh, it didn't really transpire. But it does just show that he is thinking. 
He's not just out there hitting balls. Like he's an incredibly smart player. And I don't think he's boring at all. I find a lot of things boring <laughs> and I don't think he's boring. Wow, this is breaking news. Wow, no, I I don't think, I think he's great. And I think what he says is great. Uh, I love the fact that he's not celebrating. It's just, you know, I made this decision. This is what I'm doing. I'm getting on with things. And for Zverev, there's loads of positives. No, look, he didn't come out on top in the final, but the victory against Roger Federer following which he, he yelled that it was his time a little bit more ferociously <laughs> than that, but saying, right, this is me and I'm here. He has had not a lot of confidence for a while now. Hence those double faults you talk about at key moments keep slipping in, but things are settling down. His relationship has settled down back with his girlfriend. His father seems fit and healthy. Tony Godsick, the part of teammate, the Roger Federer agency was in his box. So that side of things is obviously settling in. <laughs> I like the way a lot of people were saying that sort of it, Roger Federer created his own downfall with all the coaching he did. It was very at the Labour Cup. Yeah, well, <laughs> that is something you've got to consider, right? Came back to bite him. Um, and, and Roger Federer being quite, unf- and I don't know, there's all the stories. And when he was younger, he was, he was quite volatile. He did have a temper, but it was quite unfederal-like really wasn't it when he he was out on court I mean I don't know if you felt the decision was was pretty harsh with the two balls that that left the court but uh he was very very rattled what did you think did you think it was harsh to have a point point penalty it's a tricky one if you're playing by the rules then no because on on two occasions he knocked the ball high and it it could have hit some look it didn't It, it wasn't hit aggressively I think it was the fact the intent was there he was annoyed goodbye tennis ball which is which is the letter of the law and it was followed but it felt on the other hand other hand it felt a bit excessive because it wasn't hit with force and it was just a little bit of frustration so can I sit on the fence with that one see I told you see no I've I've had my views for this podcast now I'm retreating (laughs) that's all we get that's all we get no but, but for me I actually felt like it was you know there'd been a lot of outbursts through the match from Federer in terms of ball abuse. He'd slammed quite a few into the floor. He slammed one into the net as well, which didn't get picked up. And okay, yeah, that was maybe worse than the one that he had. But, you know, ultimately, if you put yourself on a warning, then you're susceptible. You've got to be careful. And it just felt like that last one where he got the point penalty was just quite careless, wasn't it? He just kind of was a bit fed up and he just flung the ball and it went out into the crowd and if you hit it out into the crowd in frustration, it's an automatic uh, code violation. So, yeah, he, he had been, for me, yeah, he'd, he'd, he'd crossed the line. That's just, that's the way it goes. You've got to protect the spectators, particularly their drinks. I mean, can you imagine? You knock somebody's beer out of their hand. Shocking <laughs> behaviour. You should get sent off defaulted straight away it's terrible sent off sent off <laughs> can you imagine you're off <laughs> Federer you're off sorry what sport are we even playing I know <laughs> but yeah amazing point penalty came at quite a a serious time and yeah just the way that he was being because he was already grumpy wasn't he he was already complaining very with, grumpy uh with it was Nacho for Adele wasn't it with the umpire saying you didn't tell me there were new balls in a game and then he went and took forever to change his racket. I don't know why people don't run. Just jog over, pick your racket up, jog back. Takes 10 seconds. I don't know why they decide to walk so slowly. Did you ever have... Now, this could have been at junior level and it doesn't have to be as long 
everyone's talking about the start of Federer and Djokovic, you know, 17 finals in a row and, and the run of unbeaten games that Medvedev's on, etc. Did you ever have a point in your career? And I say, you could have been five or you could have been 15 when you look at me as if to say, I, <laughs> I don't know what you're going to ask me. Having started with Djokovic and Federer with 17 finals in a row. Did you ever have that moment? It could have been brief. It could have been like three matches when you forgot how to lose. Because I was talking to Jill Krabis about this, because at the moment, Medvedev seems to have forgotten how to lose, which must be the most incredible feeling, walking out onto a tennis court thinking, I've got this. I'm feeling, I like you were talking, how aggressive he was from his break points down, seven volley. Have you ever been, and you may have been like seven and you won three matches and you were like, I've got this. But I, I, I can never imagine that feeling having never been in that in that position yeah I well back when I made 18 finals in a row <laughs> I was <laughs> no um no I I did I, I had a really great run um because when I was 14 I wasn't really anywhere in terms of national tennis and then I really came up around the outside and I had probably the best part of two years where each level was just very easy to figure out. Either it took one match to figure it out, which I may have just scraped through or I potentially lost. But then I would just figure out the level and just kind of think, oh, okay, I can do this and then just keep going and, and winning. And um, yeah, they're probably about 15, 16. And when I started playing professionally as well, uh, the very beginning, it just took, you know, one tournament and I just realize okay I get how it works and then I won the next one and then yeah just kind of carry on oh for me it went really quickly it was way too quick I wish it had been slower but it must be an amazing feeling right you you go into a match or a court and and of course you've you've practiced and maybe you've got a strategy and you've analyzed the opponent or not Uh, I don't know what happens that age level how in depth you do look at who you're playing but to have that confidence in your ability thinking right whatever they do I am confident that I can beat them yeah you just you just get into this sort of mindset where like you just swing and I know that sounds really stupid but like a lot of the time you play matches that well there's two things the majority of your career you'll walk onto the court and try to win or you will in each shot you hit you will try and make it a good shot um and when you get to these bits which where Medvedev is or or like you're you're um suggesting and how I experienced it I'm sure yeah Jill had a similar thing you just stop trying it just happens and it's almost like kind of being in the zone you know like really being in that sort of zone and it's so effortless and that you you feel like you can do absolutely anything and you just as I say you stop trying to hit a good shot you just move to the ball and just you just decide I'm going to hit a forehand and then it's just you just can't miss and it's the same with losing it's really when you you just kind of win and you're like, oh, oh, I, I, that was quite easy. I thought that was going to be difficult. Oh, well, next one. And you're like, oh, this one's going to be tough. And then, you know, the first few games, it's more about once you have the ability in yourself, it's about figuring it out. And I think that's what we've seen from Medvedev so much is that you go on the court and you spend the first three or four games kind of figuring out the level of the opponent. And then once you figured it out, you're like, oh yeah, no, I've got this. It's fine. I get it. And then, and then you just win. And I remember, um, yeah, as I say, when I was about 15, it was about a year where I don't think I tried to win once. I was just like, I'll play some tennis. And I was just better than everybody I was playing against. And I, I barely lost. I think in that, in that year, I was still playing domestically. And in terms of British tennis, 
I think I lost one match in the entire year. So I won Winter Nationals, Clay Court that's, Champions. That's incredible. Yeah, I won Winter... Uh, so I won all of the... Um, they were called Grand Prix. There were, we had three of them. And then the highest point scorers go into the Winter Nationals. So I won two of them and I came third in the middle one. That was the only loss I had was the semi-final and then I won the third, fourth playoff. Um, and then I went to Winter Nationals, won Winter Nationals, went to Clay Court Championships, won that, won summer nationals as well and so domestically that year I only lost one so hang on did you just say you won the clay court because yes we've taught many a- <laughs> <laughs> well it's grey clay so we, we, oh, okay I was going to say we've talked many times about your relationship with the clay and how well I just didn't like it so I wasn't bothered <laughs> well there were two tactics basically if I well if I play against people who also hate the clay then it turns out I'm like oh I'm all right <laughs> when you play against people who love clay you're like I don't know how to play on the surface at all I can't stand up it's kind of humiliating <laughs> so it just depends some people think they're really good on clay and I'm just like okay okay you haven't actually played a clay quarter so <laughs> especially kind of British kids who've played on it kind of three weeks a year <laughs> since they were young or they've played on artificial clay their entire lives like, I love clay right. okay <laughs> enjoy yeah right let's see how that goes for you with your flat game yeah and I think you just have that sort of ability to figure stuff out and and for that year for me I just kept jumping up levels so so quickly and then I played professionally I went after that winning the summer nationals I played the my first professional event and I kind of won a few matches and I lost but I lost tightly and then I figured it out and then the next week I won it and then it just yeah you just kind of keep going but that feeling of I'm just gonna swing and I know it's going to go in. Like you just know it's going to go in and, and be, having that level of confidence and you could, you, you, you set up for a shot and you could almost feel like you could bet your entire house on it. You could bet your life that you're going to make it. You just know, you just 100% and, and, and it's not even kind of like, oh, I'm sure I'm going to make this. It's, it's like a deep down, like full belief. Do you know what I mean? Like you absolutely, you just know, you are so confident that you're going to make this shot, even when it's a difficult shot. And you're like, yeah, I'd bet my life on it. I'd, I'd do anything. I, I just, I, I know I'm going to make the shot. And then when you're not confident, you're moving up to the shot saying, I hope I make it. And it's a completely different sort of thing, uh, you know. And I think we saw that contrast between Medvedev and Zverev in the final. Even though Zverev has been playing really well through the week, you know, he's not oozing with confidence. And you could see that. That's why those double faults came in. Because, and that second double fault, woo! I mean, wow, he really slowed down. Myself and Adam Fielder, we were working together. When he missed the first serve on the set point down, we just looked at each other. We both went double this is yeah, definitely exactly. did you do the same thing it, you could just exactly. tell right yep I was with Barry and we just looked at each other I think my words were it just doesn't bode well for Zverev with the way he has been with these double faults they're gonna and can you imagine if we're all thinking that he's at, of course he's thinking that exactly of course he's thinking exactly the same we're thing. sitting in a commentary box looking down going oh well we know what's coming well we have a feeling we know what's coming here then of course it's going through his mind as well so, yeah. so how does he rid that of his... I think it's it's incredible, the contrast, and to see those two players, Zverev, the lack of confidence he's had in Medvedev, sort of floating around. Just And I, I quite like the fact he doesn't over-celebrate because it's sort of keeping things at a level rather than just going, maybe he look, he's gone back to Moscow and, and gone completely bonkers and celebrated. But actually on the court, he's not getting carried away. He's not sort of differentiating between a first match and a final. Yes, and that was something that uh, he talked about after 
Gerasimov made the octopus comments. I love these octopus comments. I tell you, I was, all, that's all I was talking about in commentary all week. People were just thinking, what's wrong with you? So like, he's an octopus. You don't understand. You're on TV calling him an octopus. I'm on radio calling him the snake from the, from the Jungle Book in a positive way in terms of how he's playing his game. People must be thinking, what on earth? And then if they listen to the podcast, we bring the snake and the octopus together. The other thing I feel under pressure, there's, um, there's a cake sale. Oh, and you'll remember from my preschool days, I felt the pressure to make the cakes. Now this year, I bought some cakes, <laughs> but I don't know whether to take them out of the packaging and put them on a plate and look as if I made them, or do I just keep them in the boxes where they came from? No, put them on a plate. I mean, this is my first, it's my first cake sale. So do I pretend that I've spent hours producing these red velvet, whatever they're called, delights, or do I just keep them in the boxes and say, I didn't have time, but I'd like to contribute these. Uh, just put them on plates. No one's going to know. What, pretend they're mine? Yeah. Well, you don't have to pretend <laughs> they're yours. Just don't say that they're not. It's like my Ooh. fake bag. I don't walk around just saying this is a fake bag. This is a fake bag. You just have a bag. Okay. Uh, but then if someone says, did you make them? My answer is what? No. Okay. Don't lie. Come on. Well, I might as well just keep them in the boxes then. Why am I putting them on a plate? Because, well, no, I just, just stick them on a plate. And if somebody asks, say, no, I didn't make them, but it's fine. We talk about Coco Goff, someone we talked about loads yeah. during Wimbledon for obvious reasons because she was just sort of going through the draw. She has now won a WTA title at the age of 15. She's up to what 70 odd in the rankings. She lost in qualifying in Lynch. She got in as a lucky loser. She beats Elena Ostapenko in the final. I mean, it's she's look, as a, again, I can't relate to this at all. You can relate on the level that you were playing tennis at this age, but can you imagine being a 15 year old winning a WTA title like this? Oh, it's mad, isn't it? It's absolutely mad. Top 10 win as well over Burton's. That was her yeah. first top 10 win. Uh, and it's just crazy that she was a lucky loser as well to do it. So, I mean, if we just talk about Coco, it, I mean, it, it's great. But again, there's always something inside of me that doesn't want success too quickly. Um, and I think, I know she can win these tournaments, but that doesn't mean she should be doing it. Do you see what I mean? And I'm not, I'm not for one second saying that she shouldn't have gone to the tournament at all. But the more talent you have, I think the more careful you need to be with it. And we've seen many players, you know, go through a lot of difficult times when you know in terms of just in in terms of getting success too early and also it kind of sometimes can stunt uh, your improvement and your development because you're winning and you're busy doing stuff so you're not actually developing physically or it's a difficult one though isn't it and especially now and Coco Goff speaks so well she did some little bit on I don't know what the, it was it a, like a Twitter live thing you know I, I don't understand technology but it was something like that she was doing a little chat when people kind of kind of like it and she was saying that she got a lot of hate from a lot of people um, when she lost in, in qualifying and people being really negative and people after Wimbledon saying you're never going to win you're not going to do it and she said you know to all the haters I've done this and this is great and it is great but I imagine it's like when you you know you open the box you sort of let the genie out the bottle she's won this title She's in the top 100. And I know there are the rules to limit what she can play, but it must be really hard if you are her or even the people around her, despite the fact the closest people working with her are her parents, to kind of slow down this train because all you want to do is keep going. Sponsorship deals are coming in. People are talking. You are living the dream 
that you've always dreamt of. So really hard at that point when that dream is becoming a reality to say, well, actually, we're just going to, that dream you've always wanted, we're just going to stop it for now and you can have it a bit later. That must be a really difficult thing to do. Us oh, a really tough thing to do. And I think in other industries, it happens a lot. So something like in the music industry, you get a lot of parents saying, OK, no, we're not going to do it for you just yet. And then it turns out they kind of miss their chance. I understand that. But so- something like tennis, it's just if you're good enough. So it, it, there is absolutely no need to be doing it now. There, there really isn't. As I say, I can un- totally understand if it's an actor or a singer or that sort of thing. You've got to think, well, the attention's on you now. You've got to go. You've got to go, go, go. Take the opportunities while you've got them. Because by the time you're 18, you might be completely done. But we've heard you know, a fair amount from child actors and stars and stuff and how it has been really tough for them. Even the ones that had really normal parents, even the ones that were trying to pull back, like it, you just, sometimes there's just no stopping it. It's a beast. It's bigger than you. You become a product, ultimately. That's tough to deal with at any age, but to be that young and to suddenly be spoken about like a product and be, you know, handled like a product. People are having meetings about you and and whatever. I think it's quite extreme and for me, there is just no need. There's just no need to be doing it right now. There isn't, as far as as far as I'm concerned. I remember actually when I trained at IMG at Boletaries and I worked closely with Nick. And there was a girl there who was an unbelievable talent for her age, probably about eight. And I used to hit with her and warm up with her. And Nick and the parents had just said, you know, she's not she's not competing until she's 13 she's not you're not going to wheel her out for matches until she's 13 she was at IMG there are hundreds of players there they just set her up with practice matches so she still learned how to play but she didn't go and play a competition they were just like she just doesn't need to it's it's not it's it's not a thing that needs to happen she's a child and whatever so I I don't know but that eight-year-old that eight-year-old did she or has she gone on to have the career as you said if she's got it at eight the chances are Yes, things get in the way, but did she go on to have a career? Uh, that I'm not sure, actually. I probably need to, to have a look, but she would probably be... Well, she'd still only be about 17 or something, 16, 17, so... That's incredible to think, isn't it? The age of eight and 17 is, 17 is still so young. Yeah, I mean, that was 10 years ago. So for me... In tennis, your level is your level. We see people come back from injury. More often than not, they manage to get back to where they were. So we saw a nice uh, picture of Anna Konyu, who we spoke about recently. She's going to be back playing again soon. Like I've got no doubt that she's going to get back to where she was because the te- level of tennis that you can produce is that. And it's not going to go anywhere. And I think potential never changes either. If you've got the potential to be a top player, even if you plateau, even if you stall, doesn't matter what happens, the potential doesn't change. Sometimes you might run out of time. You, you know, once you get to 35, it's tough to still be like, I've got the potential to be a professional tennis player. It's like, we well, you, <laughs> you kind of don't anymore. <laughs> That's, um, you know, you've got you to suck that one up, I think. But do you see what I'm trying to say? I, I just, I automatically just kind of wince at it because it is very rare for a child and she is a child uh, for a child to have global success and fame and earn millions of pounds and end up being okay you have to understand that is very rare you're talking like I mean surely it's less than 10 percent and now there's nothing to say that she won't be in that 10 percent but there's got to be some sort of restraint I think yeah it's wonderful I think as with children you just want to 
protect them, whether you have children yourself. You just want to protect a child and nurture them and, and look after them. And she seems to have a, good people around her, but she's also got a lot of people around her. And we've spoken before about the sponsorship deals she already has. And it's it's really nice to see her doing so well and to see that smile. And this is something she's dreamt of since she, I was about to say since she was a child, she still is. Um, since she was probably in single figures, it's probably something she's dreamt of and she wins this title. But yeah, there is that little thing in the back of you that you do worry because because she has so many people around her because she is said told to be that she's going to be the next big thing and but I, but on the other hand I can also see the other side of things is you know how do you tell her we're going to pull back or we're not going to do this or you know you, you have to keep things into perspective it, it, I, I just think it must be really difficult whichever side you're on in this having to to, to stop her say you I, I don't know I, I think it's very difficult but it, her parents are heavily involved in her career and they seem to be pretty sensible and I just hope that she keeps listening to a few people around her rather than the millions that are suddenly going to be around her. I mean remember we we were talking at the US Open the people in her box they went outside of her box it went about eight rows up past her box all these people every time she won a point largely in suits all these people stood up and clapped and you kind of thought <laughs> who on earth are all these people but it's it, I'm really happy that she's one that said but I get what you mean it's almost it's it's a negative in some ways as much as a positive. Yeah, I, I mean, look, she is amazing. She is a, an incredible player. The way that she plays, I think that she is a huge talent. But I do not see why preventing her from playing tour events, for example, or Grand Slams or whatever, would slow, would mean that she wouldn't get there. I don't, I don't understand. Because with tennis, as I say, you are as good as you are. And when you're good you move through the rankings very quickly as we've seen with Coco. So I, I don't know what if next year she'd played Lintz and won Lintz. Well, she has a whole year before then to develop all of the other parts of her brain and herself, her emotional self and, and, and do things or be at school or I don't know, just whatever it is like the, why that wouldn't make any difference or two years later, it wouldn't make any difference, but it might make her more, able um to to cope i suppose and and it's a, it's a long career i guess the thing is has it already gone too far can she can she be a normal 15 year old now when you've got sponsorship deals coming in with you and like super famous people are sending you messages and know who you are and you have a management team and you probably have another team and you probably have a another team it's kind of i'm not saying go hell for leather and just go for it but it, you kind of wonder how normal she can now be as a 15 year old yeah it'll be interesting to watch won't it it's um it's definitely food for thought I'm not really saying there's a right or a wrong way but I would always err on the side of caution and as I say her talent is going to be there whether she's 15 18 22 it, it makes absolutely no difference she can be a top world-class tennis player whenever she decides to do it and I just think we're very fortunate in sport particularly that if you're good enough, you're good enough and you'll still be good enough as long as you're still training and playing and, and, and doing it. Okay, it might take a little while to get back to being good enough if you take a good chunk of time out. But yeah, I mean, I don't see any, I don't see any downsides to, to waiting, but it seems like they're not going to. So I hope um, that it will, it will all be fine and she will in, enjoy the ride as, as best she can. And uh, yeah, we'll just have to, Watch this space, I guess. Now, you know the words I'm about to utter. Oh, 
It's all. It, do you know what? It's always just goes right through my heart. It's so <laughs> devastating whenever we have to come to it. But I mean, the good news is that we're actually because a lot of the time we do our podcast, we're not together for whatever reasons. For me, it's because I've got to dash off and get the boys, and sometimes we're in different countries and places. But we are actually going to be together. We're going to have lunch tomorrow. We're going to. We wanted to do the podcast today. Yes. Um, but we're actually going to be together with Sven, and we're going to have lunch tomorrow. So we're going to sit down, and that's going to be. That's going to be great because we haven't actually seen each other for a while. But I want to end on this question because it's something I brought up during Shanghai and I got mixed answers. No one could tell me yes or no, right or wrongs. Electric toothbrushes. Yes or no? Mm. Yes. Well, it's not very convincing. Why? Do you have one? Yes. When did you last have a normal one? Well, I, I kind of mix it. I do a bit of both. Because I think the, the twins just starting school, I think they're too young for electric toothbrushes. Oh, yeah. But, but I was told that they should have them because... They're, they're better. I don't have an electric toothbrush. I'm just really old-fashioned. I'd probably like run out of batteries or forget to charge it. It would just be a disaster. But I just think they're too young at just starting school age to have electric toothbrushes. Well, they don't need an electric toothbrush. They've got baby teeth. Yeah, but you still got to... I know they're going to fall out, but you can't tell your children, don't worry about cleaning your teeth, they're going to fall out. Because if, <laughs> if they stay with that mindset, they, then you've got to tell them the second set, don't go losing the second set because they don't... Yeah, no, there, there is only two. So, so you've got to... You, you don't tell them the bit about, oh, don't worry about it because they're going to fall out just yet. Mm. But um, yeah, there was... So we had some dentists getting in touch on ATP Tennis Radio and, and it seems that the age is a little bit high but there's a few people that bite like Barry Cowan was saying you've, you've got to you've got to give you've got to give your children electric toothbrushes so I just wasn't wow. sure yeah I was okay well I know they're just a lot more effective aren't they do you well is it yeah I think it actually is yeah I know it's annoying isn't it I kind of flip between the two so I use the electric toothbrush like I don't know in the evenings and then a normal one in the morning or something I don't know is that because you're tired at night so you don't want to do the work yes <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out which way around that would pretty be pretty much it all stems from laziness and when I travel I just take a normal toothbrush alright I think that's I just had to ask that question because people have been I'm thinking I don't think I'm doing the right right before I go and get the boys I've got to take the cakes out the boxes that they bought in put them on plates and they're going to think wow she spent so much time how did she get that detailing on the icing just like that I'll be like well had a little bit of time today so I did it so I will let you know if anyone asks me if I made them or not <laughs> <laughs> just say you didn't it's fine but just okay, wait for somebody to gonna, ask that's all yeah I'm just gonna hand them over and they'll say wow they look amazing thank you and then like dash away I'm doing my bit that's the thing I'm doing and, and I look forward to lunch tomorrow yes I'll see you tomorrow we'll take a picture of people that's what we'll do with, with Sven uh, yeah with Sven last time we brought Sven he gave me a very weird look okay so I look forward for lunch and a picture with you and Sven yeah he's not a big fan of yours it's a bit harsh <laughs> oh, just saying just want to manage your expectations so the, so the restaurant I was thinking of doesn't accept dogs does that mean Sven can't come no oh, <laughs> bye 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 <laughs>